Hi, welcome to the Product Momentum Podcast, a podcast about how to use technology to solve challenging technology problems for your organization. So today we are talking to Kate O'Neill, and she is a well-known author in the tech space and does a lot of work with software companies, whether they're Fortune 100, all the way to startups. And really her work is centered around thinking about the human side of technology and software, because too often, Companies, as they automate, as they inject algorithms, which is just becoming more prevalent, they forget that you know this this thing we call a customer or a client or a user. At the end of the day, it's a person. It's a human being, and we need to make sure that we're considering everything that's you know a human being is feeling, thinking, how we communicate to them, and using that to essentially create an advantage in the experience of how our software, our brands, our products serve these people. So, you know, something, Sean, we've, we talk about is this idea of a fourth dimension. And in business school, they teach you about, you know, speed, quality, price. And they typically say, oh, you can only pick two. You know, it's this triangle, you gotta pick two. And then the third one suffers. But we don't right. really think that's true anymore. Right. Right, that's what they teach you because the internet has come along in the last 15 years or arguably longer and changed all of that, right? So if, like like you said, in business school, at least when I went to business school, they taught me there's this trade-off triangle of price, quality, and speed, and you've got to pick which two you're going to compete on because you can't pick on all three. You can't compete on all three. Um, but the reality of today is very different. Like if you're not fast, we all have cell phones in our pockets and connection to this immense amount of information and knowledge and we can find a competitor in a heartbeat. And if you're not high quality, it's just, there's so much transparency in the world because of the things that the internet provides um, to just about every business today that you don't, you don't last very long. So you have to be high quality. You have to be fairly priced. You have to be um, fast and all of those things do matter, but it's not like you have to choose two. You kind of got to figure out all three. And what really matters is the degree to which, those three things impact the customer's experience because that's how we really compete is how we make people feel and how we connect to people at the end of the day. And, you know, and that's the reason why Starbucks can charge five bucks for a cup, cup of coffee that, you know, before they came along, at least in the United States, you know, a cup of coffee was rarely over two bucks, right? Cause they're not selling you a cup of coffee. They're selling you an experience. Yeah. And so really businesses should be looking at this as an opportunity to either, think about how to consider the human side and the experience as they build a new product, or if they have an existing you know, product line, you know, consider auditing it, you know, for lack of a better term, and thinking through where are we being a little lazy maybe in some of the ways that we treat the customers, even though we've automated this process. Because for me, you know, I've talked about phone trees before. I hate phone trees. There's some companies I really, I really like and I'm an advocate of overall. You know, I like their software products. I like their online experience. But if I have to call in, dear Lord, the phone trees where you're just endlessly hitting a number to get to the right person. And even if it's voice activated, you know, telling them why you're calling, they can't understand it, still can't get to the right person. You just end up pounding zero. And I, I time nowadays when I have to use a phone tree, I time how long it takes me to get to a person. And I swear there's nobody that can get me to a person under a minute. It's always one minute, usually two, sometimes three. And it's just terrible. So you know, if you think about this, it can really be a competitive advantage 
for your for your product for your business because there's just so many companies to be frank that are behind on doing this and then approaching their their products this way so we think this is a great talk with kate i think you're going to enjoy it we get into you know tactics how do you actually you know start doing this better doing it more and then we talk about how to measure success too and for all the blockbuster fans out there there is a little blockbuster reference that's right that'll be interesting at the end of our talk with kate so let's get after it here we go here's your episode with kate o'neill all right so cool so today we have a really great guest kate o'neill v underscore kate o'neill uh so kate thanks for joining us Thanks for having me, and thanks for thanks for the definite article with the underscore. I really appreciate that. Yeah, it's uh, audio emphasis, but um, <laughs> so cool. Yeah, so we you know we've met you and got to know you through the recent ITX conference we ran, but you know you've really been in the tech space for quite a while, and um, have a couple books out now that we'll talk about. But could you just introduce yourself for the audience and kind of let them know how you got started and where you're at now? Yeah, yeah. So I definitely have been in the tech space for quite a while. It's been um, some twenty some years or whatever. I, I got I got into it almost by accident because I was uh, I was a linguist by education. I was doing uh, I was a German major, uh, heading up the language laboratory at the University of Illinois at Chicago when I saw the graphical web for the first time, and so that dates me right away. <laughs> but it, it blew my mind, and I just thought this is this is everything. This is going to change the world. This is just phenomenal, outstanding. So um, I just, I learned that I could actually build a website for the language laboratory. And so I just got crazy with it and got excited and, and uh, did that. It turned out to have been uh, very early on in the, the uh, sort of departmental website process, perhaps even the first departmental website at the university. And it got noticed by a guy in Toshiba in California uh, and eventually they, they recruited me to come out and build their intranet for them, which turned out to be the first departmental intranet <laughs> that Toshiba had. So I got on this role of doing these kind of firsts. And um, it, it was all just based on just curiosity and passion and, and seeing the possibility of what technology could do in these contexts, you know, to, to sort of uh, create connections for people and opportunities for, for people to, um, to engage with brands and with departments and, and all the different entities that were trying to reach their, their constituency. So I uh, did that for Toshiba and then fast forward a few startups because I did a bunch of startups and I ended up at Netflix in one of the first hundred people there and uh, created the first content management role for them, which was pretty awesome. It was a great place to be uh, and uh, I, I loved my time there. Um, so that, that, and then I got to see uh, the ex early days of you know <laughs> Netflix like fighting all out bloody battle with Blockbuster and winning, <laughs> so that was great. And then uh, and then fast forward a bunch more years, I started my own agency, Meta Marketer, uh, doing analytics and strategy, uh, and uh, got to work with cool companies like Adobe, Symantec, the Grand Ole Opry, is <laughs> great stuff. And uh, and now I do uh, professional speaking, and I'm an author, as you mentioned. Um, I advise companies, uh, mostly Fortune 100, but, but also uh, high growth startups, all kinds of companies really on uh, kind of how to keep the, the focus on the human, even during big digital transformation efforts. So how to make their business more successful and scalable through di digital technologies, while also providing 
what I hope to, to people embrace as more meaningful human experiences. So that's the, the long, long version of the story, but there's a lot of fun twists and turns in there. No, that's great. Very cool. And I think there's one blockbuster left hanging on. <laughs> so sorry. sorry Isn't it in me. Oregon? Is it? Oh, I thought, I can't remember. I thought Alaska. Somewhere, somewhere out there though. What? I think it might be in Oregon. And I think, uh, Sean, you're in Oregon right now. Aren't you? I am in, I am in Portland. So I'll have to go look for that today. <laughs> that's your mission. <laughs> Just for nostalgic for nostalgic purposes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, cool. So, so your new book is called Tech Humanist, and you know you've had a, a book before. This fixes in place. And what what kind of inspired you to write Tech Humanist, though? Yeah, so when I wrote Pixels in Place, it was um, it meant to be a, a focus on this whole connected space of, of physical and digital experiences and how things like the Internet of Things and wearables and sensors and beacons and all that type of technology is really merging the, the experiences of online and offline and digital and physical and how there really doesn't seem to be as much of a distinction as there ever was. And I touched on automation and I touched on artificial intelligence in, in doing that work. Uh, but but as the next kind of year unfolded during my my keynotes and other uh, kind of interviews and and opportunities to to discuss it, I found that one of the things I kept coming back to was the world is increasingly automated as well, and there's increasingly an emphasis on how businesses use technology to scale what they're trying to do, and a lot of what's happening is not necessarily done with a mind toward how that's going to play out when it actually reaches this kind of tipping point of scale where the world around us is almost entirely automated. And what does that look like for being a human in a world that's almost entirely driven by machines? So I think business can really use technology and be you know, very successful with it. And I, I think as humans who run businesses, it's in our best interest to think holistically about how to make that technology serve the business objective while also serving the objectives of humanity in a, in a very integrated way. So that's the, that was the gist. I wrote a, a manifesto, as one does, uh, in uh, mid-2017 that was called the Tech Humanist Manifesto. And the response to it was just so, uh, so overwhelmingly good. I, I, just, I felt so encouraged that other people were kind of thinking the same thing, that the feedback was, you know, you, you articulated exactly what I've been trying to figure out how to say. And it was, it was just so, uh, so exciting to think that there was almost like a movement waiting to happen. So I took that momentum and, and did the work, put the research together and put this book together. So my hope is that what it does is create a model, a methodology, you know, kind of a framework that business leaders can use to think really well about the, the strategy that they're using, create these great, you know, kind of profit-driven experiences or sorry, sort of profit-maximizing experiences that are, that are good for the business, that, that make everybody successful and happy within the business, but also that are creating these meaningful experiences for all the humans that are inside and outside the company interacting with those experiences. So I would argue that your timing for this kind of thought leadership and thinking is perfect. Oh, that's great to hear. In theory, you know, when you think about the evolution of how humanity has used technology to serve itself, right? How we're using it, it's, and you use the word digital transformation, um, disruption. There's, there's a ton of words being thrown around the business world, you know, the last five to 10 years around what this actually means. But in, 
It is all about changing the way businesses operate to focus more on solving real problems for real humans in real context, which is what your thinking is all about. Stop me if I'm wrong. No, no, it's, that's a great articulation. Uh, can you just come around with me and, and do that explanation everywhere we go? <laughs> sure. <laughs> well, I, you know, I think that's a great, a great, um, a great opening for me to, to clarify, too, that I think digital transformation is this funny term, too, right? Like, we've been talking about it on some level for maybe a decade or so. You know, it's kind of surfaced here and there in the CIO spaces and, uh, you know, kind of... IT infrastructure spaces, and everybody knows that there's more and more need to digitize the operations of a business, the logistics, the, you know, kind of connect the dots on the supply chain, make sure there's visibility and transparency through the supply chain and through the enterprise. And there's incredible efficiencies that come from that. Uh, and, and then the, the opportunities that happen, you mentioned disruption too, the opportunities that happen when you think about platform disruption and uh, the app-driven service economy, that what can happen with, with using digital tools and data to, to, to uh, surface opportunities that exist in marketplaces. There's just a ton of rich opportunity there, both to make money and to make human lives you know, more convenient and uh, to, to uh, make some interesting quality of life improvements for for some human beings. <laughs> but I think where we end up to, on, on one hand, one of the problems is I don't think that, that some of those solutions necessarily look at the whole picture of humanity and aren't necessarily thinking about all of the humans who are affected by some of those disruptions. And the other side of it is that digital transformation is almost like a misnomer, right? Like digital is kind of missing the point. It's really this data that's driving this transformation, the underlying data that connects all these different pieces of the operation. And, and, and it's the data that comes primarily from human interactions with those systems. So it's us, it's our human data, it's our behaviors and it's our preferences and our purchases and our movements through space and all kinds of our behavior that's generating that data that business is harvesting to make its decisions, to, to craft its algorithms, to drive these things forward. And the important thing about that is to respect that the, the, the real humanity that's part of that data. So to create these experiences that acknowledge and pay tribute to the, the rich humanity that that data represents. So even when we talk about digital transformation, we're really talking about data transformation. And fundamentally, we're talking about human data that's part of that. So every discussion about business digital transformation, I feel, needs to have a kind of core understanding about how much humanity is part of that discussion. And I think it's very easy to abstract away from that in those discussions. So I just want to infuse that humanistic thinking in the boardroom at the moment of those decisions. That's great. I think another way to frame that might be to say that it's not really a digital transformation. It's more like an experience revolution. Like we're really... Oh man, you're good at this. Yeah, thanks. So, uh, <laughs> we're really thinking... The, the, the transformation that we're seeing is really around fo the focus on how we're solving these problems in very tactical and meaningful ways for, for people. And that's what we have to figure out. So, so, we, so our um, podcast here is really about building software products to, to, uh, to interact with humans um, in solving those problems. So we've, we want to talk a little bit, of, we want to try to get a little more tactical with you and, and get some ideas from you that might spark 
um, some of our listeners or our community to build better human products. So do you have any specific advice or tactics, things that we might experiment with or ways of thinking that will help us build more tactical human connections into software? Yeah, I, I think there's there's a number of, of, of specifics or uh, tactics that I can suggest. And, and one way that I frame this is in, in Pixels in Place, I actually introduced the um, integrated human experience design methodology, which um, my friend Jeffrey Zeldman lovingly calls iHead. Uh, so we, if we look at iHead, I was talking a lot about uh, the, the concepts of integration as a whole. I was talking about um, uh, adaptability and kind of learning from your iterative process, uh, a whole bunch of other constructs that are part of that. But the, the, the thing that I think is the most tangible uh, sort of specific takeaway that product thinkers can, can think about is how to, how to find the meaningful metaphors of the brand and of the interaction, and then how to make those, uh, the experiences that are part of the product and part of the, uh, the extension of the product, all the interactions and micro interactions in and around that product, how can it resonate with those metaphors? How can it dimensionalize those metaphors? Um, so, you know, even, even like a microcopy that, that happens within interactions or onboarding that happens to a product or to an app uh, are, are really critically important in establishing that there's this sense that there's a shared understanding between the, the, the company or the brand or the product and the user of the product, the human who is the user of the product, right? That there's some sort of shared understanding because there's a shared understanding is, is the key here. I, I, I always go back to this model of communication, that communication kind of fundamentally exists in three parts. It's what the speaker is trying to communicate, the message itself, and then what the listener receives. And anywhere that there's a shared, anywhere there's overlap or is a shared understanding between those three parts, and that's where meaning exists. So I feel like that's a very transferable model to thinking about product, to thinking about experience design, to thinking about anything at this kind of tangible level where you're actually out there trying to create the things that people are going to interact with and, and thinking that there's an, there's an intention behind it. There's what, you know, what the business is trying to do through the product. And then there's the actual kind of interface itself, the, the product itself. And then there's what the person who's using that product experiences of it, like what their sense is of the, the whole thing. And, and you're trying to create as much alignment there as you possibly can. And, and part of what helps do that is this dimensional thinking, this way of, of creating the sense that the, the, the metaphors are intact and you're enriching them as much as possible. One of the, one of the examples that I think helps clarify this is um, one of my favorites is, is really Snapchat and their launch of the Spectacles uh, product. So the, it's, it, you, know, you could argue whether or not it was a... Um, a, a raging success. I mean, on any sort of profitable or, or revenue centric measure, I think, you know, it, it looks like a success in the, in the sense that it drove tremendous amounts of, of, um, of adoption and traffic and so on long-term who knows, you know, whether that's going to continue to be a product that, that survives, but the, the understanding that they had of what they were trying to create and the sense they were trying to create in the, the people who, were using and, and buying this product was really intense. Like they understood that they wanted to create these standalone 
storefronts. I, I happened to be working on a project that was a block away from the one in New York City. So I got to walk past every day that it was happening, which was a couple of days, I guess. Um, people lined up around the corner, around the block from this storefront. And literally every time I passed, a few times a day, people were snapping selfies of themselves and the line. And it was just this, it was literally a spectacle. It was something that people were excited to share, you know, in this sort of selfie context, this uh, Instagrammable, Snapchatable kind of context that we are all so familiar with now. Like it's a share or you didn't experience it kind of existence. So they were doing that. And then of course, you know, if you actually went into the storefront and interacted with the kiosks, there's a whole other thing that's very visual, is very um, novel and original, that it was like no uh, sort of typical storefront where you're, you're looking at something on a shelf and going to a counter, you're going to a kiosk. And the kiosk is there to guide you through the process of buying, to show you options. And, and it, even that, taking a picture of you in the kiosk, it's all still focused on this photo-oriented experience of the world. Uh, so in every possible way, they just did such a brilliant job of thinking about what they were trying to have people experience and making it as dimensional and rich as possible. So, I mean, I think it just does, it doesn't have to be a profound interaction. It just has to be one that actually connects in a resonant way with the people that it's trying to connect with. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And, you know, you mentioned like the copy in your product, for example, we, you know, over the last several yeah. years, we've kind of seen like 404 pages having, you know, fun copy and actually like acknowledging like, oops, something's wrong. Like we're not just showing you a nasty error. Let's help you actually get where you wanted to go and have it understand that you're a person there because, you know, we're always talking about the users or the customers or the clients or, you know, things like that. At the end of the day, it's always people. There's a person that that's talking about. Um, so I think the, the copy is a great example. We see designers, product people, business stakeholders, all, rallying around the copy more and more nowadays rather than just trying to cram it in at the end once a product is built. Yeah. It's so funny you mentioned the 404 pages. I actually had that in my notes uh, to prepare for, for our discussion today, and I hadn't quite touched on it yet, but that's exactly right, that there's this whole 404 phenomenon or page phenomenon that, uh, that injects personality into this error page is something that there's even been, as you know, there's been roundups of like the best, most creative 404 pages out there, which is hilariously absurd <laughs> to think that people are like going out of their way to go visit error pages on websites just because they express some element of the brand's personality so well. It's kind of a good test if the company, quote unquote, gets it in terms of yeah. you know, communication and, and knowing who you are. But um, so, so I guess without you know, calling out any company specifically, unless you want to, but um, any, any reasoning or, you know, kind of traps you think companies are falling into where they're missing out on this and they're just kind of not hitting the mark. Is it just laziness? Is they don't know what they don't know? Like, why is this still happening, you know, nowadays? And, you know, how can we avoid that? Yeah. You know, I, th I think uh, I probably won't, call anyone out unless something comes to mind that seems like it's a really specific great example but but i think in general what what i seem to see happen is that companies seem to go off the rails um when they start trying to be all things to all people in some way right like it's it's they've lost track of you know who it is that they're really trying to be connected with 
and they've spread, spread themselves too thin or they're going after some kind of growth that isn't meaningful anymore, that doesn't kind of keep them in, in alignment with who is really kind of resonating with their product. Uh, so it's, I mean, it's a pretty natural tendency, I think, to want to broaden your scope of influence and uh, you know, widen your reach and make more money and all of that, that's totally understandable. And it's certainly, you know, the impulse that's driven in corporate America through the, the, the sort of overriding capitalistic model that we work within. But, you know, sometimes adding that one feature or that feature set or making that one spin-off product model or whatever it is, is just enough to water down the alignment that you may have had with your core audience who just loved you, who totally thought, you know, you got them, you understood what, what you, what they were about. So I think that's a, that's one tendency that I would, you know, really discourage uh, companies from, from playing to is if they, if you need, if you need to go deeper or broader, or sorry, I guess I, I should say that the other way, if you want to go broader, the, probably the better option is to think about going deeper. Like how can you add more value to the people that are already your customers so that they're going to tell other people who are like them, who share some sort of attribute with them. Um, how can you find that sort of uh, dimensional connection that there's, there's like an affinity attribute that if you add a product that's going to, or add a, a, sorry, a feature to your product, it's going to add value to your core users. It's going to bring in this additional set of users um, that are excited about uh, what you're doing. I think that's a, a much richer experience for everyone and a much richer opportunity if you can find it. And, and I think that's just the hard work of it is, is trying to find what that, what that core feature set is, what the, what the expansion possibilities are in ways that don't diminish the meaning that's, that's shared between the, the company or the brand and through its product and, and the customer's uh, that are the humans that represent, or sorry, with the humans that interact with the brand uh, through through that experience. That's a great answer, Kate. Thank you for that. Um, you're really speaking our language here because we're all about building loyalty and advocacy, and I think that's part of the formula. Is really, you know, once you've landed a customer, how do you make that customer a customer for a hundred years? Make them make sure that you're taking care of them and and building real loyalty through value. Well, it's what you see happen when, when you do it right, you know, you see the, the, the metrics go in the right direction. Like if you're doing the right work of connecting with the, the, the audience who cares, um, the people who, who um, are really getting value from, from your product, then you should see retention numbers and loyalty numbers go up. You should see churn go down. You should see cost acquisition go down. You should see all of those metrics moving in the right direction um, because that's, that's what happens when you actually offer value. And, and it's, it's, some, it's so funny because I think I choose this language of meaning and meaningfulness uh, to, to speak about. And I think it sounds like I'm talking about something very like um, sort of touchy feely and uh, <laughs> feel good. And it is, but it also it is a very practical kind of idea because it, it translates into the kind of results that any business leader wants. <laughs> you want the growth, you want the, the loyalty because it's more profitable to keep a customer than to gain a customer, right? Like generally speaking, or to, to have to go out and, and buy a customer in a sense. 
um, you, you want the, the ability to, to see churn go down. You, you don't want people leaving. So you can figure out these ways that, that you can model what's meaningful and then actually figure out the data model too that tells you for sure um, that, you're, that you're making the right decisions, that you're doing the right things, and that there's something that's, that's really happening uh, through all the different touch points that you're having with people and, and, and that's bringing you back insights about how you can continue to improve and add value for people, um, but, but that, you're, that you're doing it right, that you're adding meaning and that hopefully that means that your work is more meaningful too. Yeah, you touched on something there. It reminded me of a quote that I wrote down from Pixels in Place. So I'm going to read it. I'm going to read it real quick. Ready? Ooh, yay. Don't allow your algorithms to be subservient to the profit motive. And I love that quote because that pretty much sums up everything you just said. It does. It's so much more succinct than what I just said. And, and it's your words. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, so, and we try to, we try to live and build our business, entire business um, around that, help, helping companies to figure out how are we going to take your clients, your customers on this journey through software. Um, and you also touched on KPIs. So I want to talk about that real quick. I, we have a, a framework that we call the loyalty ladder and it's, it's really around setting three core KPIs for every software product. How is it building trust? How is it building loyalty and how is it building advocacy? Cause we believe that if we can get every user on that journey, trust, loyalty, advocacy, that we're well on the way to building that, you know, hundred year sustainable relationship where they're going to come back to our software product forever into the future to solve those problems. Have you seen any other powerful KPIs around this stuff around meaning and, and building um, real human relationships through software? So I think uh, the, the work that I've seen that really seems the most meaningful and exciting to me about KPIs and metrics in general with, with product work and with strategy and design work and, so, and all of that kind of, of, um, of tactical hands-on work of creating the experiences um, tend to be these kind of, they're either proxy metrics for something more abstract, like meaningfulness is something very difficult to measure, right? You're not, it's, it's going to be nearly impossible to come up with some measure that, that truly represents meaningfulness. But you can come up with proxy measures that within the context of what you're doing, give you a sense that you're on the right track. And I think, uh, you know, I think about things like memorability, which, um, you know, is often measured by how, how well somebody retains your brand when they see it again. Uh, or, um, like you just mentioned trust and advocacy. Advocacy is a great one. Like how, how often are people referring you? How often are they, you know, sending other people your way? Or can you see what kind of uh, chatter is going on in social about you? And is it positive? Uh, so there's a lot of that kind of, of stuff. But I also come back to, um, you know, Jim Collins and uh, the good to great sort of framework of the, the, the hedgehog principle and, and, and what, what really is unique about what you're doing and being able to come up with this kind of complex construct of the uh, Jim Collins and good to great talked about the profit per X, you know, the denominator, that's really your thing, like what you're doing. That's kind of, that's unique in some way. And I learned when I, I was at magazines.com uh, heading up customer experience and product development there. And I did this, we did this work of trying to come up with increasingly nuanced understanding of what we were really optimizing for. So for example, when I, when we first started on this work, we kept 
talking about um, increasing the number of uh, sales, the units we were selling, or the you know talking about how much money transacted through the website every day. But after a while, you know, through some discussion, we started talking more and more about the subscriptions because that was more the meaningful unit of what was actually happening. People are buying magazine subscriptions. So in order to make this more contextual and relevant, let's not talk about it as just money or just orders. Let's make sure we're, we're kind of bringing in that one little nuance of subscriptions. But then it was another facet that was like, well, really we're talking about if we want to optimize this for a customer centric point of view, we need to switch that and not talk so much about subscriptions, but rather about subscribers. How many subscribers do we have interacting with the site every day and coming back and what's happening with that? How, what's our profit per subscribers, not our profit per subscription. And then another one further refinement was, you know, a lot of what we understood about the, the model of our business was it was really only successful and we had really only done our job if people were renewing the subscriptions that they bought from us. So the, the profit per denominator became renewing subscribers over time, profit per renewing subscribers. So you can see how like that evolution is showing this process of becoming increasingly customer centric and increasingly, you know, kind of finer point on getting that nuanced understanding of what's really making the meaningful connection and how can even just that little bit of thought of that little bit of shift toward that, that language and that model of the, the measurement can make such a huge difference in the way that you're aligning programs and what priority you're assigning to features and you know what kind of road mapping you do to make sure that you're getting the right things to happen that moves the needle for the company and also creates the most meaningful experiences for the people. Very, very cool. So, so putting myself in the, the shoes of a listener, let's say, let's say I'm a CEO of a small company or I'm, you know, in charge of product at a, at a company and I'm listening to this. I'm like, wow, we are just really, really missing this right now. We're, we're totally off. What would be, cause it's probably overwhelming to think about how to fix all this at once. What would be like a good baby step that they could take to get started? Like after they're done listening to this or tomorrow and you know, how to, you know, maybe kind of like crawl there rather than run, run there. You know, I actually think that the best step that anybody who finds themselves in that, that sort of situation can, can do is it, it sounds like a big macro step, but it, it's actually something that brings so much clarity that it's worth doing. And it's not that hard that trying to come up with some concise articulation of the company's strategic purpose. That's what I keep coming back to in, in my work is that the, the, the shape that meaning takes in business is purpose. And it's this aligning kind of uh, force that when a company understands what it is that they exist to do and are trying to do at scale, then they can actually really make much better decisions about the priorities that they set and the resource allocation that they have and, and everything that kind of flows from that. And it, and it even informs digital transformation efforts because it has to be understood at this top level of strategy before operations can really align around it and brand and marketing and, and experience design can really align around it and data strategy flows through it and technology deployments should really be informed by that same sense of, of strategic purpose. So it, it's like it, all of that stuff eventually does need to be 
you know, kind of in alignment and thought through, but even just doing the work of trying to come up with that, that one concise articulation of strategic purpose can make an, an enormous difference on the, the remaining decisions you make that day. Uh, I mean, where, where you put emphasis in prioritization uh, and, and goals even. So, uh, you know, to, to be clear about what I mean by strategic purpose, I, I always love to use the example of Disney theme parks because they're sort of the, the gold standard of strategic purpose articulation. And they talk about create meaningful experiences as being their strategic purpose. Um, and, and everything kind of flows from that. And you can see how that works operationally. Like if you're, if you're someone who's on the front, front lines of customer service, it makes a big difference. But even if you're, if you're doing product development work that's a little longer range, or if you're doing operational work that's financial or accounting or whatever, everything can come back in some dimensional way to that understanding of create magical experiences. So it's a very helpful aligning philosophy that guides the company and guides the, the efforts within the company. So that's what I would say that people could stand to do is spend, spend 20 minutes today just trying to put into three to five words what it is the company exists to do and is trying to do at scale. And even on a product level, I believe that'll really make a difference in a very short amount of time. I love it. Great advice. So um, some specific questions and then we'll, we'll wrap up. And by the way, you ruined my last question because I was ready to ask you what, what, what company um, could you give us as an example? And it was great. Disney's a great example. Oh, yeah, yeah. I'm sure I can come up with a few others. But uh, what was, were you going to ask another question? Yeah, yeah. Um, what, give me an example of a specific software product that you recently used that, that you felt was connected to the meaning for the company that it was built for. Hmm. It is a tough question. I'm, you know, it's funny the way my brain works. I, I don't often hold on to specific examples and I have to go back to the, the writing I've done. But, um, you know, I, I don't have one off the top of my head. I, I think there have been quite a number of, of companies and brand experiences that I've had in the last few weeks or months that have seemed like, well, this one facet of the interaction is really good. And I'm really, <laughs> really pleased that they've, they made this thing so nice. But then, you know, usually there's something that's like, ah, oh, <laughs> it didn't get the rest of this right. And it would be nice if, if the attention that was paid over here was also paid over here. Um, so I, uh, I hate so, to say- Some movement in the right direction, but nobody's got it quite perfect yeah. so, that it's become, so that it's become memorable, which means, which is great for me because that means there's a lot of opportunity in the world. Yeah, there is a lot of opportunity <laughs> in the world. <laughs> yeah. And I that's think great. like one other, you know, you, you we're talking about, companies that do a great job of keeping meaning in the forefront of their strategy um, and how I use Disney as an example. But I think another one is, is um, you know, the kind of classic is uh, Southwest Airlines is, is, has never failed to come through in dimensional ways about a meaningful strategy. And it comes, it goes through every facet of their brand and their operations and their experience. I mean, they think about the way that they even set up the company to be, operationally efficient by having all the same airplane model so that all the same pilots, so pilots could fly them all. So maintenance crew could take care of them all. They did these short hops is their, their model, um, which means that, you know, they can, they can keep their schedule very on time that, you know, everything is, is so streamlined and so 
thoughtful. And of course, the, the value proposition is that they're a low cost airline, but that's not really what's happening at an experiential level. Because what's happening is they are, they're sort of handing that over to customers and kind of with a wink and a nod going like, you want a low cost airline, right? Like you're willing to trade frills like assigned seats and uh, meals and things like that for being able to pay a little less and, and um, have a more no frills experience. And we'll have a little fun with it. Like we'll do the safety announcements in a wrap or, you know, something goofy and the stock ticker is going to be LUV love, right? Like it's all so richly understood at a really, really holistic level. So, I mean, I think they're, they're the, the sort of gold standard I come back to when it comes to, you know, thinking through every facet of how the company comes to life in different ways for people as they interact with it. And even their, their app, their, um, everything about uh, that, what they do is a, is a rich translation of that understanding. So there's, a, there's one great example for you. We usually ask our guests, Kate, what's one number one book you would, would recommend that uh, people in our audience read? You've mentioned um, Jim Collins, I think it was the Hedgehog Principle and Good to Great. Um, my favorite, one of my favorites is uh, Speed of Trust. Great book. Um, is there any other books that you'd recommend? Obviously your own, which, which we will recommend as well. Yeah, yeah, of course. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I, 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 of course, yes, uh, mine, I'm very excited about, about my new one being out on the market and everything, but, um, no, you guys were talking about, uh, uh, your loyalty ladder and the trust and advocacy and advocacy, um, you know, of course translates into this, uh, something being so remarkable that it's, it's worthy of discussing with people. It's like worthy of being a representative of, and, and I think the best, uh, sort of standard bearer of that and the, the people who are having the most informed conversation about that right now in, in the market that are that's current to, to today is uh, are Jay Bear and Daniel Lemon with their new book, Talk Triggers. And, and the best thing about this book is that it has alpacas on the cover. So you can't go wrong one way or the other. <laughs> but absolutely, Jay Bear and Daniel Lemon's new book, Talk Tracker Triggers, I would highly recommend people look into to, to get a real understanding of that word of mouth marketing and, and how uh, really doing the right things, doing things right, and, and making the, the experiences as dimensional and rich as possible will translate into this, this advocacy that you talk about. All right, you sparked one more. Okay. little thought here. So you mentioned you started out as a linguist, which I find fascinating because mm -hmm. words fascinate me because I believe that at the core of all culture is really words and how we define them and how we use them, right? And advocacy is one of those words that it's very important to my business and to, to what we do here at ITX. And here's how we define it. I love your feedback on how we define the word advocacy. I believe advocacy is when your customer is willing to invest in the future of your product or service not necessarily in your business, but in, in the product or service that you're offering, they're willing to invest in that. And that could come in many forms. It could come in the form of a referral, as we would traditionally think of as, a, as a, an advocacy event, but it could also come in the form of unsolicited feedback. Hmm. Like when they're willing to step out of their day and write you a note, put thoughts on paper that, are, that is constructive. I'm not talking about complaints, but mm -hmm. constructive feedback that will help you improve your product or service. That's like gold to your business. That's true. And that's a sign of, that's a sign of a, of a real advocate. So 
we've cataloged a bunch of behaviors that we believe are advocacy behaviors, and they all kind of boil up to this investment in the future of your product or service sort of definition. What do you, what do you think about that? Well, I love it. I think it's a beautiful kind of um, way to think about uh, the, the value that's being transacted between brand and customer. Like, right. I think a lot of people think of, of there being value that happens one way, right? Like if people pay you money, that's the show of value, but you're doing, you're talking about a much more nuanced understanding of value that says time and attention and uh, interest is, is also a form of value that humans show each other as well as, you know, the brands that they enjoy. So that's a really nice dimensional kind of approach to that. And I love too that it's investing in the future of the product and service because there's a sort of deferred belief going on there, right? Like you're saying, I believe in you enough to think that paying a subscription to you or um, giving you this feedback now is worth my trust in doing so because you're going to translate it. You're going to to turn that around into something that's going to improve my experience and others' experiences, and it will have been worth my time to do so. So I think that that's a beautiful articulation of that. Thank you. Cool. So one more question, and then we'll we'll wrap. So at this point, would you consider Sean and I to be tech humanists? Yeah. Would you you like (laughs) to call yourselves tech humanists? Because that's what matters. I'm changing my title right now. Of course you would. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And and this is a, so this is a a really fun thing that's been a a change for me is that when I first started, you know, when I wrote the tech humanist manifesto, I had been sort of using this term loosely for myself for a while. And I I decided with that manifesto that I was kind of boldly declaring that I was a tech humanist. And I hadn't seen anyone else use that term. So I thought like, this is really important. I'm putting my stake in the ground. But it became very evident to me with the feedback I got from writing that and sharing that, that other people felt that too. And it was so important that this not be my term, that it be our term, that we are all tech humanists if we want to be. And that this is something that I, and I've said many times in front of audiences, when you see this book come out and it's called Tech Humanist, I want you to feel that I wrote it for you, not just for me, although I did write it for me, but I did write it for you. I wrote it so that you would see your name, your, you know, your, your description in the title of the book and know that this book is about you and how you can make the world better for all of us. So I think it really is, you know, Sean, I think you're the one who said early on that this is the right time for this discussion. And it it really feels like it is. There's such a tipping point about to happen with automation and with artificial intelligence. And every little bit makes a difference. Every little bit of everybody within their product teams, within their companies, within everywhere that they are part of making decisions about data and digital technologies and experiences Every little bit of recognizing the full complement of humanity that's part and parcel of what goes into that experience and what, who's going to interact with that experience, all of it is going to make a difference at scale at some point in the not too distant future. So yes, I absolutely want you to be tech humanists right along with me. So thank you for asking. All right. Well, thank you, Kate. I think that wraps us up. Um, your work is profound. It's, it's refreshing and different, and it's really important. 
Thank um, you so much. For the world and especially for our industry. So keep after it. And for our readers or our listeners, rather, go read Tech Humanist if you do nothing else. <laughs> Where can they find <laughs> it, Kate? Uh, and right now, uh, Amazon, and then it'll be available uh, in, in bookstores everywhere pretty soon. So yeah, check Amazon and absolutely spread the word. I'm, I'm so excited to share this with the world. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you both. All right. So that's it for today. Thanks for listening. And we're not going to just talk to talk. We're going to walk the walk. So we would love if you go into your podcast products and leave us a review. Sean and I guarantee and are committed to reading absolutely every piece of feedback we get there. And not only that, but you're helping other listeners by getting that feedback in there. It helps us move up the search rankings so that other people can find the episodes. So thank you, everyone.